2: is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: So what if somebody was to sue Fox News, right? I mean, you've got red states where people are... Brian Kemp opened the beaches of Georgia over the weekend. I mean, this is nuts, right? Try to kill your people. You've got eight or nine red state governors who are still refusing to do shelter-in-place orders. They are going to get... Probably in May, their states are going to melt down. And a lot of these states have basically no rural hospitals left because they didn't expand Medicaid. So literally hundreds of rural hospitals have gone out of business in the last decade because of that failure to expand Medicaid under the uh, Affordable Care Act. I mean, it's just nuts. What if somebody was to sue Fox News and Rupert Murdoch and and maybe even AT&T and Comcast for broadcasting lies that are costing people's lives? You think that would be a good idea? Well, it turns out somebody has. The Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics, also known as WashLite, W-A-S-H-L-I-T-E. The director of this organization, his name is Arthur West. Arthur is on the line with us. Arthur, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. So glad to have you with us. So you live up in Washington State, and you have filed a 10-page complaint against these guys. You're suing them. Tell me about the lawsuit. What is it? Where did it come from? What's your goal? Well, our organization's
4: been around for three years. It was formed by a number of activists to pursue public interest litigation. This suit came pretty much out of discussions that we had about Fox's programming, and one of our members caught the virus, and We thought that uh, having this type of misinformation on the media was harming the response in the state and that we would like to do something about it. And so we did some research. We looked up the Consumer Protection Act. And basically, this is a consumer product case. We believe Fox is mislabeling their content and that they willfully and maliciously published material that caused a clear and present danger of harm to society in general.
3: How specifically are they mislabeling their content? You mean they're calling it news when in fact it's propaganda or political uh, propaganda or something like that?
4: The Consumer Protection Act in our state, the core of its protections are the intent to deceive. and Our claim is that Fox's product that it sells and places in the broad stream of commerce, through its cable contracts, has the capacity to deceive Washington consumers as to what's news, what's opinion, and more importantly, what's prudent to do in light of a global pandemic.
3: Yeah, I guess in the context of a pandemic, you have some family history here.
4: My friend Liz comes from Pennsylvania, our attorney. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly of the details, but in Pennsylvania, there were no conditions imposed and a lot of people died and I think his This mother is during the was one epidemic of the only of 19, survivors. 18. Yes. Or Liz's grandmother I believe was one of the only survivors of her entire class.
3: So you guys have some familiarity with this. One of the things I noticed in the uh, news story that I read about this was that you believe that uh, the discovery process, you know, when you sue somebody or for that matter when you're sued, there's this thing called discovery where both sides get to basically dig into the details of the other side's business activities and things like that. What do you expect to find in discovery? I'd like to point out that it wasn't just the
4: statements of Mr. Hannity. There were a number of Fox News or news personalities who minimized the coronavirus. Charles Payne on March 6, Mark Siegel, Jenny Pirro, and particularly Ainsley Earhart and Laura Ingram, who on March 13 encouraged people to fly. So... What we would hope to find in discovery and what we'd have to hope to show is that while Fox was broadcasting this information, they knew or should have known that this was actually a significant threat. Murdoch family, the things, dude,
3: they called off Rupert's 90th birthday or whatever it was, put the whole family into quarantine. And I think that was January. It might have been February, but that was pretty early on.
4: And they also apparently have some internal memos where they urge the people at the network to take reasonable precautions. So Mm. my question, or our question, would be, if they knew that this was a threat and they were taking those precautions themselves, why were they broadcasting to the nation and internationally for people to do exactly the opposite?
3: Right. You're filing this lawsuit under the Consumer Protection Act, basically. That Fox is selling, and make no mistake about it, they're selling at a huge profit. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a billion-dollar enterprise that throws off hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars in profit every year. That Fox is selling a false product, and in, in essentially implying, while well, they state that their content is entertainment, as do pretty much all the companies now, they imply that it's actually news, that it's real information that you can trust, when in fact it's not Uh, and I get that but the real-world consequence of this is that people are dying I encounter these folks from time to time um, who who actually watch Fox News believe what it has to say and they're like you guys are all hysterical what's the big deal you know I'm gonna go do what I want you know I mean there's still people having parties and stuff this is gonna lead to death many of these people are gonna die or they're gonna be permanently damaged we now discover that according to the New York Times today In addition to permanent lung damage, you may end up with permanent eye damage from this disease. It actually deforms the retina. I mean, this is serious stuff. Why not go after them for something like, you know, uh, involuntary manslaughter?
4: Well, that's more in nature of a criminal prosecution and the ability of the courts to deal with media in the context of freedom of the press and the First Amendment is very limited.
3: O.J. was sued in a criminal court for murdering his wife.
4: That might be an appropriate reaction on the part of criminal prosecutors. That's not a, a private action that we could bring. But, yes, if it were possible for us to bring an action for negligent Couldn't, couldn't you find ending. somebody
3: whose grandpa died because he was watching Fox News and went to the store?
4: Yeah, the burden of proof in a criminal prosecution is higher as well.
3: No, I'm talking and, about a civil prosecution where, like with O.J., you're, yeah. you're saying, you know, you denied my right to, to companionship or friendship or whatever. However, that was phrased in the O.J. case where they finally um, you know, convicted him.
4: Yes, that's, that's possible, and we would urge anyone who was damaged like that to speak to their attorney about it. We, though, thought okay. that the Consumer Protection Act was the quickest, easiest. No,
3: I. God bless you. I think it's wonderful, Arthur. Forgive my interrupting, but we're out of time here. Uh, Arthur West is the director of Washlight, the Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics. Tim in uh, Comano Island, Washington. Hey, Tim. Thanks for listening to KSCR. What's up?
5: Back when this virus first hit, there were a bunch of airport closures, Atlanta, New York, San Francisco, L.A., a couple other places. But Seattle was not on that list. And, of course, we're on the West Coast and a direct gateway to Asia. There was about two weeks, I believe, where the Seattle airport remained open. And that's how we got patient zero out there in Everett.
3: Seattle right, I thought all the airports were still open to this moment, to this day. I didn't know that any airports had closed. What did I miss?
5: No, I'm sorry, not closed, but doing uh, virus testing for people that came and see if they had a fever. So they were
3: testing well, I don't testing think we've been for, doing that anywhere in the country, have we?
5: Well, I don't think we're doing it anymore, but we were. Huh. So there was an article in the Times last week where these people had flown in from Asia and directly from China to South Korea and then into Seattle. And they uh, listed where they had been on a piece of paper. and. They went through expecting to be uh, tested for Mm flu-like symptoms, and they were just shoved right through and told to keep going. So these airports are still wide open for this virus to come to us. Why was there no testing done in Seattle of all the other airports being closed down and, and this being right on the West Coast directly across from Asia?
3: Yeah. That would be a question to ask the State Department that runs the Department of Immigration, I believe. I believe that's under state. Maybe it's under DHS. In fact, it's probably under DHS now, Department of Homeland Security, and, of course, the TSA, which is definitely under DHS. That would be a question for them. But they work for Donald Trump, and I think that probably tells you everything you need to know about it, exactly what's going on and, and why. Tim, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Leslie in Portland. Hey, Leslie, what's up?
6: I'm grieving the loss of critical thought and free speech kind of in this time of increased fear, and it's sort of fear that I wanted to talk about mostly because, you know, we're all in fear, or many of us are trying not to be in fear, but fear is prevalent. And, you know, we know that fear is a powerful tool that's been used, you know, in our history by the powers that be to, you know, manipulate us, to keep us feeling like powerless victims so that we're looking for protection from our leaders and the more we slip into fear and being victims it is you know the easier it is for us to be manipulated and this is kind of pretty basic stuff so mm-hmm. in this time it's just sort of this loop that i keep going in which is okay I, I can't trust what my government tells me this has been proven to me pretty solidly you know over the past years i don't trust what they tell me i can't really trust corporate media because It's not really investigative journalism anymore, and and Big Pharma pays their bills, you know, and and, and their stories are pretty limited to, you know, whatever Trump says. I I don't get a lot of the stories that really help me, you know. So I have to go outside of corporate media, like yourself, to other channels for my information. I can't really trust
3: you got 15 seconds, less, Leslie, to finish your okay. thought. Okay.
6: I, I can't also trust Google as a search engine, which is most people's only source, because they are now our big pharma. So when we have to circle all the way back for this public health emergency, but they say, now you have to trust all those resources again when it comes to your health and what you're going to do for this cure and beyond. Like, where am I? You know what I mean?
3: Yeah. Uh, Robin in Kingston, Washington, your thoughts, Robin?
7: Yeah, Tom, so I'm, I'm calling up to just kind of slightly agree and disagree with you. I feel that part of your morning's message was that you're blaming Trump for the pandemic or our nation's inability to react properly. He clearly has mismanaged presidency from the get-go, so I don't disagree with that. but. I'll tell you what I'm grieving about. I'm grieving about the loss of the peace movement. And Mm. I am coping by standing up more online and also, ironically, in the streets, okay, for the peace movement. I really switched into high gear on 9-11, and now I'm redoubling my efforts in the pandemic. And this is why, because our country is overprepared for war and way too willing to engage in it and it's woefully underprepared for national health care system and way too unwilling to do something about it that's what i'm standing up for and if i might you've had several of the people who are in the existing anti-war movements on your show david swanson world beyond war medea benjamin code pink and is beyond the bomb answer, United for Peace and Justice, Win Without War, Books Not Bombs. And I just really think that as we are in a reflective mode now, that I can and do look at the demise of the peace movement as the portal into which grifting and greed and military industrialization and militarism has just kind of taken over our psyche
3: My sense of it is that this movement has not gone away. It's just been buried by the coronavirus. It's so much the story of the day. And I think that Iran is having a massive epidemic right now. They share a border with Iraq, and it's very porous. Iraq is going to soon have a massive epidemic. It's going to be a disaster. That, if anything, is going to push America out of there, I believe. I think we're going to see, as a consequence of this coronavirus, you're going to see America basically pull out of many of these areas. It's burning through American military naval ships right now. But, yeah, we'll have time to get back to that, Robin. I I don't think it's gone at all. You're listening to Tom Hartman. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the Tom Hartman Reader. This particular chapter is an excerpt from my book, Threshold. This is from page 312, titled Sociopathic Paychecks. And it starts out with a quote from The Little Prince, 1943. I know a planet where there is a certain red-faced gentleman. He has never smelled a flower. He has never looked at a star. And all day he says over and over, just like you, I am busy with matters of consequence. And that makes him swell up with pride. But he is not a man. He is a mushroom. Okay. To the book. Americans have long understood how socially, politically, and economically destabilizing are huge disparities in wealth. For this reason, the U.S. military and the U.S. civil service have built into them systems that ensure that the highest paid federal official including the president will never earn more than twenty times the salary of the lowest paid janitor or army private most colleges have similar programs in place with ratios ranging from ten to one to twenty to one between the president of the university and the guy who mows the grass from the nineteen forties through the nineteen eighties this was also a general rule of thumb in most of corporate america when ceos took more than their fair share they were restrained by their boards that the money could be used instead by the company for growth and to open new areas of opportunity. The robber baron J.P. Morgan himself suggested that nobody in a company, including his company, should earn more than 20 times the lowest paid employee. Although he exempted stock ownership from that equation, he owned most of the stock. During the Greed is Good era of the 1980s, something changed. CEO salaries began to explode at the same time that the behavior of multinational corporations began to change. When Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, a mergers and acquisition mania filled the air. and As big companies merged to become bigger, they shed off redundant parts. The result was a series of waves of layoffs. As entire communities were decimated, divorce and suicide rates exploded. America was introduced to the specter of the armed disgruntled employee a company in the consolidation of wealth and power of these corporations was the very real redefinition of employment from providing a living wage to people in the community to a variable expense on a profit and loss sheet companies that manufactured everything from clothing to television sets discovered that there was a world full of people willing to work for 50 cents an hour or less Throughout America, factories closed, and a building boom commenced among the Asian tigers of Taiwan, South Korea, and Thailand. The process has become so complete that of the millions of American flags bought and waved after the World Trade Center disaster, 9-11, most were manufactured in China. Very, very, very few things are still manufactured in the United States outside of the defense industry, weapons. And it wasn't unthinking, unfeeling corporations that took advantage of the changes in the ways the Sherman Antitrust Act and other laws were enforced by Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, and Bush Jr. administrations. It took a special type of human person. In his manuscript, Toys, War, and Faith, Democracy in Jeopardy, Major William C. Gladish suggests that this special breed of person is actually a rare commodity and thus highly valuable. He notes that corporate executives make so much money, because of simple supply and demand. There are, of course, many people out there with the best education from the best school, raised in upper-class families who know how to play the games of status, corporate intrigue, and power. The labor pool would seem to be quite large. But Gladish points out there's another and more demanding requirement to meet. They must be willing to operate in a runaway economic and financial system that demands the exploitation of humanity and the environment for short-term gain. This is a disturbing contradiction to their children's interest and their own intelligence, education, cultural appreciation, and religious beliefs. It's the second requirement, Gladish notes, that drastically reduces the number of quality candidates for corporations to pick from. Most people in this group are not willing to forsake God, family, and humanity to further corporate interests in a predatory financial system. To the small percentage of people left, the system continues to increase salaries and benefit packages to entice the most qualified and ruthless to detach themselves from humanity and become corporate executives and their hired guns. One of the questions often asked when the subject of CEO pay comes up is, "What would a person like William McGuire or Rex Tillerson, the CEOs of United Healthcare and ExxonMobil, respectively, possibly do to justify a 1.7 billion dollar paycheck or a 400 million dollar retirement bonus?" It's an interesting question. If there's a free market for labor or CEOs, you'd think there'd be a lot of competition for the jobs. And a lot of people competing for the positions would drive down the pay. All the Healthcare stockholders would have to do to avoid paying more than a billion dollars to McGuire is find somebody to do the same CEO job for a half billion dollars. And all they'd have to do to save even more is find somebody to do the job for a mere $100 million. Or maybe even somebody who'd work the necessary 60-hour weeks for only $1 million dollars. So why is executive pay so high? I've examined this question with both my psychotherapist hat on and my amateur economist hat on, and only one rational answer presents itself. CEOs in America make as much money as they do because there really is a shortage of well-trained sociopaths. The book is ultimately it's from Threshold, but it's in the Tom Hartman read. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving? Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro-kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. What a, a remarkable time to be alive, isn't it? I mean, these are the times that future generations are going to look back on and go, "Really, they had a pandemic? They had an epidemic? They, really?" I'm, it's here we are. So, I want to start out. I want to start out with these conservative billionaires. All right, over the last forty years and really arguably it goes back more like 50 years because it goes it goes back to the Lewis Powell memo back in 1971 but they really seized power in 1980 or 81 when Ronald Reagan was elected president after you know cutting a deal with the iranians to hold the hostages to make jimmy carter look bad and that's you know pretty much exactly 40 years ago now in that 40 years, these billionaires have built this huge infrastructure in the United States. All these think tanks, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and the Heartland Institute, and the Cato Institute, and every single state has one. In Michigan, it's the Mackinac Center. I mean, they literally, every state has one of these right-wing think tanks funded by the billionaire class. You've got ALEC all across the United States. And basically, the fundamental message of all of them has been what David Koch ran for president on, the platform on which he ran back in 1980, which is end the federal income tax, and then with the federal government having no cash, end Medicare, end Medicaid, privatize Social Security, although doing away with the federal income tax would not affect Social Security, because it has its own separate tax, the FICA tax, but anyhow, privatize Social Security, turn all of our roads into toll roads, and all municipal ownership of everything and free public schooling of all forms, not just college, but, you know, elementary school and all that. Just stop it all. This is what the billionaires have been pushing for for, for 40 years now, literally. And what the Republican Party has gone along with. I mean, you got Betsy DeVos in there. About half, the, more than half the schools in Michigan now are privatized, for example. That's her home state, Michigan. The DeVos family are, are the billionaire royalty of the state of Michigan. And so, I'm suggesting that we give them what they want. You know, they've been ranting and raving for years and years about, you know, end the federal income tax. And I'm saying, fine, end the federal income tax. Let's take it to zero. Let the federal government pay for the military with tariffs and fees, like they did from the founding of the republic right up until World War One. The the federal income tax wasn't even put into place until 1913. So just like, fine, end the federal income tax. And then the blue states, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, maybe New Mexico, I believe. And then on the East Coast, you've got all those Northeastern states, that whole huge chunk of Northeastern states. And then in the middle of the country, you've got Illinois and Minnesota. Let the blue states form an interstate compact. And there's plenty of precedent for this. The states of the Northeast did this first with a cap-and-trade thing on greenhouse gases. That was then emulated by a Western states compact. That's California, Oregon, and Washington state. We're all cutting back on greenhouse gases. Let's form an interstate compact among the blue states to provide all of our citizens with single-payer health care. We can do this. I mean, the blue states represent between two-thirds and three-quarters of the entire economy of the United States and the entire population of the United States, even though they hold essentially a minority in the Electoral College because of senators and things. So let's just end the federal income tax because really what it has become is a giant transfer of wealth from productive blue states and productive people in blue states through paying 20, 30, 40, 50% of their taxes to the federal government. Now it's down, it's kind of capped at 30% now. But when Ronald Reagan came into office in 1981, the top federal income tax rate was 74%. So just do away with that and let the states have income taxes. You know, they already have the right to do it. So by doing away with the federal income tax, now the states can have their own state income taxes, and they can charge 20 30% on income in their states. And by the way, the blue states are where all the high-income you know, earners are. And the blue states can put together their own equivalent of the Department of Education. And they can fund higher education in the blue states. And they can put together their own version of Medicare. And they can fund single-payer health care in all the blue states. And they can put together their own version of the Environmental Protection Agency. And they can keep their air and water clean. You know, the polluting industries have largely already fled to the red states. You've got Cancer Alley is Texas and Louisiana. It's where all the refineries are, poison, you know, dumping all their poison on people. So they're already in the red states. I mean, the red states have already largely accomplished this deregulation that the billionaire class, you know, Charles Koch and his buddies are trying to inflict on the rest of America. So you know, food stamps, the federal food stamp program, the red states don't want it to happen. They're tightening the screws, they're making it harder and harder and harder for their people to get food stamps. Leave them alone. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at, for example, Mississippi. Almost one quarter, twenty-four percent of the recipients of Mississippi are on food stamps, compared to ten percent in California. If they're so gung ho about states' rights when it comes to women getting abortions, I mean, or gun rights, right, or the right to vote, for that matter. If they're so gung ho about you know having states' rights, give them states' rights. Okay, guys. You know, for every dollar Mississippi sends to Washington, D.C., they get back $4. Why am I paying for that? I'm in a blue state. America's wealthiest billionaires, you know, the Walton family, the Kochs, Jeff Bezos, they've been working for years to gut union protections. Fine. Let them have their right to work for less laws. Those laws are in place in pretty much every red state right now. Let the blue states go their own way and strengthen union rights. And when the red states start to collapse under the weight of their stupid libertarian ideology that they're trying to inflict on our entire country, these newly separate blue states of America can say, sort of like is happening in Europe right now, or happened in Europe 20 years ago, they can say to those countries, well, if you want to join our union, if you want to join our interstate, the blue state interstate compact, you have to raise your top tax rate up to 35 or 40 or 50%. You have to provide Medicare for all of your citizens. You have to provide free college education to everybody in your state. You have to do away with your restrictive abortion laws and other weird health care things and, you know, prayer in public. You know, just, just let's go back to the ideas that animated the founding of this country, separation of church and state. You do those things, And you can join the Blue State Compact. And let's see how rapidly America becomes blue. So do you think I'm crazy? I mean, (laughs) or do you think I'm onto something here? Can you punch holes in this? I realize many of you live in red states, and and this may sound pretty uh, gruesome to the people living in red states. Can you move? Or what do you do? You know, might this be the shock that causes red states to wake the hell up? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Steve in Goldendale, Washington. Hey, Steve. I don't know where Goldendale is
8: Good morning, Tom. In 08, you know, we the people of the U.S. bailed out the banks from the mistakes that they themselves made. I think it's Mm -hmm. time that the banks step up and pay America back you know they should that's probably not gonna happen steve because the ceos
3: and the stockholders have already made off with all the cash
8: Oh yeah you know the ceos are still getting paid they're on salary rest of america's mm-hmm. out of work but they're getting their payments But the banks need to step up. We need to, you know, they need to stop bank payments. They need to stop credit card payments, student loan payments, car payments. If America's out of work, we've already bailed out the banks, and we haven't gotten anything back from it yet. It's time for the banks to step up to the blade, time for the banks to pay us all back.
3: I think we need to go a step beyond that, Stephen. We need to cancel debt. It would cost $1.6 trillion to cancel all student loan debt in the United States. That should be done tomorrow morning, period. Just take that load off people's shoulders. Yeah. With, with regard to credit card debt, I think that anything that people have paid in interest and fees to the credit card companies over the last, say, three years, maybe five years, should be refunded to the individuals themselves. And that'll probably allow a lot of Americans to pay down a big chunk of their credit card debt. Medical debt, all medical debt in the United States, that's several trillion dollars. That needs yeah, to all That's a
8: travesty, cancel. isn't it?
3: Yeah, they're still suing people. I mean, during the epidemic here, they're going up and, and serving papers on people. You've been served because you owe medical debt. I mean, we're the literally the only country in the world that has medical debt, in the developed world anyway.
8: My wife and I spent years paying off her credit card debt. I was a union carpenter, so I didn't have mm-hmm. debt that kind of debt. And I have children now that are just paying off debt, and their whole life is paying off their student loan debt. They're both making a fair sum of money, but the student loan debt is just eating them alive.
3: This is the new cheap labor system. You know, conservatives, you can define all of conservatism with two words, cheap labor. And in this case, what they're doing is they're saying, we are going to put you in economic chains, essentially. We're going to put you in bondage. And the bond is your debt. And until you pay off the debt, you're going to have to take whatever damn job we offer you because you've got no alternatives. I mean, that's the basic message that is being delivered to students, well, to people with student and medical debt in the United States. Yep. Uh, you know, credit card debt is a little more problematic because there is a certain level of choice involved. Although for people who are very low income, who want to feed their children, there's not a lot of choice involved. So I guess concomitant with all this, we need to radically raise the minimum wage and the right to unionize
8: banks need to step forward and help america out right now
3: yeah there you go we gave them them trillions of dollars thank you steve we gave them trillions of dollars (laughs) let them do something decent with it rather than sticking it in their own damn pockets So the blue states and the red states. I'm, I'm suggesting here that the blue states basically declare independence. I'm not suggesting a civil war. I'm not suggesting secession. We don't need to get that weird or that bloody or that violent or that, you know, the, the old last civil war was violent. We don't even need to get that radical. Just very simple. The blue states create an interstate compact and Democrats join with the Republicans. Republicans have been calling for an end to the income tax, the federal income tax, forever, right? I mean, this is, you know, Ronald Reagan called for an end to the federal income tax. It's just, you know, it's David Koch ran for vice president in 1980 on a platform of ending the federal income tax. So let's do it. Let's just end the federal income tax. And then, you know, each state can define their own taxes and the blue states can have kind of a standardized rate. Let's say. 50%, uh, you know, a progressive tax, or maybe let's just go back to 74%. We had a really good economy before Reagan came along and 40 years of Reaganomics screwed us, right? Let's just go back to the top tax rate of 74%. Now, only a very small slice of Americans paid that, you know, fewer than 1%, few, probably fewer than 1 100th of 1% paid 74% income taxes. But it was there, and it acted as a, as a preventative against obscene salaries and uh, you know ripping off absurd amounts of money out of companies and things like that. So let's just, you know, let the blue states go back to this, you create an interstate compact. They all say, "Okay, our our income tax rate, we're rolling back Reaganism. And our income tax rate is now 74%. And by the way, if you live in one of our blue states, your care is free. No deductibles, no copays, covers everything, dental, vision, everything. And by the way, if you live in a blue state, you can go to any college you want for free or at least any public college for free. And also if you live in a blue state, we will cancel your student loan debt and all of your medical debt. So you can start over again. And if you live in a blue state, because education is free, we're going to have the best educated workforce in the world. Our economy is going to continue to grow. The blue states are supplying all this revenue to the red states the red states are the takers right they're the pathetic welfare cases because they've been run according to republican ideology well let's just make it clear to everybody how this works if you look at the rankings of blue states versus red states this is from the uh orange county register it's an op-ed that was written for the orange county register and i'm sorry i don't have the the author uh, here with me. Sometimes when I print these things out, they just uh, it just doesn't come through. But you could Google it. It's called Blue States rank better than Red Ones. How's your state fair in 14 national rankings? And they look at livability, raising families. In every case, by the way, in every single one of these, the blue states are massively better. Now, the one area where the blue states are not massively better is billionaires. The wealth, you know, the the ability of billionaires to hang on to their money. You know Charles Koch is doing much better in Kansas than Bill Gates is doing in Seattle. Because Bill Gates lives in a blue state and Charles Koch lives in a red state. And Charles Koch is quite happy about that. I'm guessing Bill Gates is happy to live in a blue state. But outside of the right-wing stuff, livability, raising families, being a patient, they, they quote the United Health Foundation, education, the U.S. News and World Report, Best student grades in the country, Massachusetts and New Jersey, personal freedom, new neighbors, economic strength, the strongest economies, job growth, workers' rights, the business climate. Who's business friendly? Well, you know, if I'm moving my business to another city or another state, I want to know that they have a robust infrastructure. I want to know that the roads don't have potholes. I want to know that the Internet connections are solid and reliable and consistent. I want to know that there's, you know, a well-educated workforce available to me. So the business climate becomes really important. And the blue states have a great business climate, which is why businesses are flocking to the blue states. Cost of living. Yeah, the cost of living is higher in the red states, but the quality of living kind of balances that out. And government solvency. Oh, and transportation. You know, do you have public transportation? So, you know, all of this stuff, it's like, here we are having a crisis right now, and in particular, an economic crisis in this context. What a great time to say, okay, billionaires, okay, Republican governors, you know, John Kasich, you wanna do away with the income tax? Grover Norquist, you wanna do away with the, with the income tax? Fine, we'll do away with the federal income tax. The individual states will collect. I mean, you know, Trump rigged this thing with the uh, tax cut deal two years ago, where if you live in a blue state, if you've got expensive property, you can only deduct the first $10,000 of the taxes you're paying to the state. Well, you know, do away with that when you do away with the federal income tax and just let the states do what they want. Isn't that the idea of federalism? Isn't that why after the Brown versus Board of Education, a couple of states and a whole bunch of counties basically shut down their public public school system? Oh, we want to go our own way. States' rights and all that. Well, let's do it. To the Tom Hartman program. You red state people, you can make all your all your public schools just fee-based. You can bring in Betsy DeVos and privatize them all.
9: Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
3: Win in Solon, Maine. Hey, Win, what's on your mind today?
2: thought I called in with a couple things. The first is a tip on handling cash that struck me that I needed to find a way to handle change because
3: one of the ways... That might be contaminated, it, you mean.
2: Right. Exactly. I went in and I paid, gave a $50 bill for putting gas in my automobile about a week ago. They handed me back the change and I grabbed it, it in my wallet, turned to go out the door and I said, hey, that was a big mistake. I got home, I said, I need to put my smarts to use here. So what I do now, because I'm a big cash guy, not much of a debit card guy, so what I do now is I take a double Ziploc bag, and I have the clerk put any change in that bag when they give it to me. And then when I get home, I either use that bag or another bag, and I put a little isopropyl alcohol in it and let it sit in there for 15, 20 minutes, take it out, throw it on the counter, boom, it dries, and it's all... That is
3: brilliant, Win. That is brilliant. Well, we're going to do a uh, pickup this afternoon. The very first time we're going to try this with one of the stores, grocery stores here in town. Although I think we paid online, but I was thinking, you know, what would I do if I have to hand my credit card to somebody? And I figured, well, we've got hand sanitizer in the car, so when I get it back, I would wipe it down. But that that's brilliant. I love it. Win. thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us. We have the smartest listeners on earth. I got to tell you, the and viewers, and you know, when was watching us on Free Speech TV, just absolutely the smartest people on earth. Steve in Coopville, Washington. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to KBCS. Hi, thanks, Tom. About a
10: year and a half ago, maybe a little bit longer. I can't remember exactly. I was listening to your program, and you mentioned, I believe it was in reference to some of the border separations that were happening at the time and some of the absolutely deplorable conditions. And I think, I can't remember exactly, but sort of paraphrase it. It was, you're mentioning that what our government would be willing to do to anybody else that they would be willing to do to us in a sense, and that that inaction is an action in itself. And we're seeing this in real time right now, that there's not a mission. And the states that are the most inactive now are going to be the most devastated. But when you said that earlier, you were talking about how the system and cutting the medical benefits and Medicare was that on a mass scale that we'll see this. And it's just so chilling that now, after hearing you say that about a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, that this was sort of one of the scenarios that you, I mean, you
3: know, the Republicans have not backed off their lawsuit at the Supreme Court to end Obamacare altogether, which would end the Medicaid expansion across the states and would throw literally millions, tens of millions of people off their health insurance. I mean, the Republicans and the Trump administration are, you know, 20 Republican governors and attorneys general and Donald Trump and Bill Barr are still arguing that before the Supreme Court. They're waiting for the court to start hearing things, but they're still in line. They have not backed off at all. Yeah. The depth of the. Um, the depth of the um, depravity, I would say, Steve. I absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's just. It also, Go ahead.
10: Well, well, appealing to the extreme right wing evangelical base, that consolidation and also talking about how this administration is outright. It's a death cult.
3: Mm hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even their anti-abortion rhetoric is a death cult because they don't care if women die in childbirth or from complications. It's bizarre. Steve, well said. Thank you very much for the call. And Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today?
11: Talking about the positive side, David Hans mm-hmm. has a website, world, And it's pretty huh. much like a magazine, part therapy session and part blueprint for a better world and where people talk about solvable and wreckable solutions. You know, I can think of some things myself after this whole thing's over. One, that people will be washing their hands, and they'll be less likely of another pandemic being as bad. And number two, this is nothing compared to, like, a hemorrhagic virus. If that had hit us, it would be pretty bad. But at least now we'll have some preparation and know what to do for the next bigger one. So, you know, that's what I thought were positive
3: things to come out of it. Yeah. I think a lot of good is going to come out of this tragedy, as as is often the case. The main thing is that the whole B.S. story of Reaganomics, neoliberal economics, has been exposed for the fraud that it is, and I think that that's Mm -hmm. a really, really good thing, too.
11: Right. And I think it's going to force a lot more humans to be humane when they're exposed to this type of a situation. So that yeah, be- it's
3: bringing out the essential humanity. I mean, the story of this woman in our neighborhood who is, you know, soliciting help from neighbors to help out seniors in a way that is safe, you know, that is sterile. I, it's brilliant. Bill, thanks for the call. Thanks for listening to Sirius XM. Gary in Felton, Delaware. Hey, Gary, what's up?
12: We're supposed to be on like like a lockdown, you know, stay inside here in Delaware. But, uh, you know, nobody here in Delaware is taking it serious. If you walk, really? if they see you wearing a mask or anything, they look at you like you're crazy yeah i'm looking right across the street here and I see people putting in sewer systems there's about 10 people putting shingles on a roof and cars flying Uh, up and down the road you know and i'm like don't nobody watch the news anymore
3: apparently not there is a reckoning coming gary yeah there is an absolute reckoning coming yeah gary thank you for the call ed in des moines iowa hey ed what's up
5: things that I'm thankful for, I suppose, is Dr. Fauci and President Como. And then I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could comment on the veracity of a couple of websites that I've seen that say that China has reopened their wet markets.
3: I heard that from somebody who I know who is Chinese, who grew up in China, left China maybe 20 years ago and came to the United States, is now a U.S. citizen, but reads the Chinese websites and said that she's seen that reported i don't have a firm corroboration for that i hope it's not the case because if it is you know get ready there's more of these zoonotic diseases out there ed thanks for the call laurie in portland hey laurie what's up
13: hi tom i called last week about the food carts and wanting to get them out to the truckers and i noticed mm-hmm. the food association has a petition right now trying to get more support because they're being so hard hit so I'm still calling and emailing and trying to get a hold of anybody who will listen to see if we can't get those two to match up. Because even if it would be little, it would help the economy and it would help the truckers. But yeah. my, I always talk fast when I call because I get so nervous. But the other thing I wanted to recommend is to support your local farms since a lot of them can't have the... Farm, some of them can still have the farmer's markets, but some can't. So if you can order a box from your local farm, even split it with Mm -hmm. your neighbor. And my one other suggestion is a lot of people are putting food in those little book boxes, which I don't know if that's a Portland thing or a nationwide thing, but I suggest any extra seeds that you have because most of them come with more than we could ever plant in our own gardens. If we can leave extra seeds in those food boxes, or those book boxes around the country so that everybody can be Mm -hmm. planting since now is garden time.
3: Yeah, it is the spring in the Northern Hemisphere. Plus, I think the next thing that is gonna happen right now we're having, you know, it's difficult getting groceries. I think the next thing is gonna be difficult getting seeds because people are planting basically victory gardens. You know, we're back to the 1920s. Yeah, Lori, good stuff, thank you. My mom used to tell me stories. She was born in 1929. And I grew up through the Great Depression and World War II and used to tell me stories about how they would take the toothpaste in their tube and when it got toward the end and they'd stick it in the door jam and close the door on it to squeeze the last little bit of toothpaste out. When we had Quip as an advertiser, an electric toothbrush company, and they supplied toothpaste with their toothbrush and they said, this is something I learned from one of my advertisers, they said that you really don't need more than a little drop of toothpaste on your toothbrush. You know the rest of it is just waste, and and that's something my mom told me when I was a little kid. She was also, you know, she taught us to how to be very sparing in the use of toilet paper and in the use of all kinds of things. I mean, she she saved bags and saved rubber bands and saved paper clips and and pretty much everything else. And there was that whole eat all your food thing. And I'm starting now as uh, Louise and I are living under these restrictions. I'm starting to absolutely understand where she came from on that, and thinking that. You know, an entire generation is going to be coming along thinking like this and and developing these strategies. And one of those strategies is going to be growing gardens. You know, FDR encouraged these gardens in your backyard or even your front yard, called them victory gardens to take the load off the supermarkets so that the food supply of the United States could be redirected to the soldiers who were fighting in Europe and Asia. Uh, You have to feed your armies. And so, you know, we were all just growing our own foods. I suspect that that's probably happening right now. I know that we've ordered some potting soil and some stuff for indoor growing to grow some lettuce and things, because I'd much rather grow my own greens and know that nobody sneezed on them than get ones from the store. So uh, you know, step by step. Today we're reading about Thunderdome politics, an uncivil war taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics by Greg Sargent, the Washington Post columnist. This is from his chapter on voter suppression. It's page 37. Republicans and Democrats inhabit different political realities, as mentioned in a previous chapter. But there are certain facts about our politics that are just objectively true. One of them is this. Generally speaking, efforts to make it harder to vote are almost always pushed by Republicans. You cannot understand what is happening in American politics right now without recognizing this stark and very fundamental difference between the two major political parties. During this decade, procedural hurdles were put into place in around 20 states that in some manner or other have made it harder to vote or to register to vote, or have undone previous efforts to make voting or registering easier, or have otherwise threatened serious disenfranchisement. Most of them were the creation of Republican lawmakers and officials. The difference in the two parties' national platforms for 2016 tells the story. The GOP platform champions additional hurdles that are absurdly disproportionate to the phantom abuse it alleges, while the Democratic platform champions multiple specific ways to make it easier to vote, not harder. The most common and controversial of methods used by Republicans to suppress Democratic turnout is the requirement that would-be voters present identification at the polls. The game here tends to turn on requiring forms of ID that some groups are less likely to have, making participation harder for them. Other restrictions include techniques like cutting back on early voting and making it harder to register, both of which have, in recent years, been instituted in multiple states. Republicans who have passed laws making it harder to vote have tended to claim such measures are necessary to protect against, quote, voter fraud. We'll look at this in more detail below, but for now... Note that most of the states that have passed such measures did so while under Republican control. As New York University political scientist Samuel Isakoff has memorably put it, the single predictor necessary to determine whether a state will impose voter access restrictions is whether Republicans control the ballot access process. Scholars trace the modern era of warfare over election rules to the intensely contested presidential election of 2000 in which a divided Supreme Court halted the recount in Florida throwing the presidency to George W. Bush. The closeness and partisan acrimony of that contest, combined with the intense national focus on election rules that accompany the court battle over it, helped persuade both parties to invest much more attention and energy on those rules. As a result, both the implementation of measures restricting the ballot and the legal battles over them have intensified in recent years. A brief glance at the surprising history of voter ID laws begins to tell the story of this tightening. In the 1970s, several states implemented voter ID measures, but all of them provided for ways that voters without the proper ID could cast a ballot. By 2000, there were 14 such laws, and they had been implemented by politicians in both parties. But by the mid-2000s, amid rising post-2000 acrimony, A handful of red states began implementing voter ID laws that the nonpartisan National Conference of State Legislatures described as, quote, strict, meaning that they make it easy to disqualify those who don't pass muster. After one of those laws in Indiana was challenged and then upheld in 2008 by the Supreme Court, an escalation began that gained momentum in the Obama era. From 2010 onward, the adoption of voter ID laws in general and of strict ones in particular accelerated. Though a handful were blocked in the courts, as of this writing, a total of 34 states have voter ID laws in effect, 24 that are deemed non-strict and 10 that are deemed strict. The strict ones are in red states or in swing states where they were implemented by Republicans. The story is very similar if you evaluate the state's voting rules in a broader way, by including not just voter ID measures, but also cutbacks to early voting and restrictions on registration. Here the trend is just as pronounced. After the 2010 elections, the Brennan Center for Justice documented a sharp rise in efforts to pass such measures to the state legislatures across the country. Not all these efforts bore fruit, but many did. By the time voting took place in Election Day 2016, some 14 states had these new restrictions in place for the first time in a presidential election. This narrative contains some important truths. Some of the forms that these restrictions on voting access have taken in recent years are diabolically obvious in their efforts to, To keep constituencies supportive of Democrats from voting. Still others boast the distinction of being more insidiously designed and thus less obvious in their intentions. The book is An Uncivil War by Greg Sargent of the Washington Post. Tony in Las Lunas, New Mexico. Hey Tony, what's on your mind?
12: Hey, Tom. Um, I was calling to uh, tell you that I completely agree with the concept of separation, but the way to go about it, I think, because I disagree with the concept of red states and blue states, I think there are urban areas and rural areas. And I think that the best way to look at separation is if we took that 2016 electoral map, the counties that voted red and the counties that voted blue, and if you look at the counties that voted blue, they, they're strictly urban areas, and I think mm-hmm. that the the best idea would look at uh, uh, city states and um, and go with a separation that way.
3: Um, well, we may end and, up devolving back to that. I mean, kind of to medieval times. But it is worth noting that uh, Hillary Clinton won just short of 600 counties. And Donald Trump won over 2,000 counties. And, and yet, the counties that Hillary Clinton won accounted for two thirds of all economic activity in the country.
12: Yeah, and, and, but like I say, the, the differences in, I guess, cultural differences are urban and rural. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way to do it, it would probably be literally two separate countries, one that is a that's based on the urban city states and one that's based mm-hmm. on the rural areas. And then, then we can work out treaties, you know, I'm, to, I'm not
3: sure, uh, Tony, I, th- I think the cultural difference that we're seeing has more to do with our media. I, you know, and, and what informs me in this is back back in the late 60s and early 70s, I, I was a country Western DJ on WITL in Lansing, Michigan. I was a teenager, I was a long-haired hippie teenager, and I was doing a DJ gig, it was on the weekends, on on the number one station in Lansing, which was country. And, you know, I would go to their events and talk to their listeners and took requests and things. And the people who listened to country music back then, a lot of them, I mean, like I said, this was the 60s, a lot of them, this was uh, 68, 69, 70, and 71, as I recall. They were horrified that, you know, Bobby Kennedy had been killed and Martin Luther King. They, A lot of them were solid Democrats, they were still FDR folks, and yet they were really seriously into country western music, and many of them were Republicans. Country music had not been defined as having a political piece to it. That was the masterpiece of Karl Rove, you know, this whole branding thing, really to some extent the Reagan Revolution. was you know, reaching out to particular sectors, sports fans, NASCAR fans, country music fans, and saying, no, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be in favor of Democrats and Republicans. It's only Republicans. If you want to be a true NASCAR fan, you've got to be a Republican. And they were quite successful in that. But I don't think it has to do with rural or urban so much as it has to do with who's getting what media, how they're being reached, yeah, well, they're I've being lived reached in, by Fox yeah, News. Yeah, you know.
12: Yeah, I've lived in both areas. Where I live now is a rural area. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, in the city, but I've lived in southern Indiana. And to give you an idea, there all the farmers, the rural folks, they were always complaining about how Indianapolis could care less about the people in the rural areas. Um, Indianapolis is the capital, that's where
3: the decisions are made?
12: Yes. Right. And the same thing here in New Mexico, where living in a rural area here, you talk to the folks here, uh, they absolutely despise uh, Santa Fe and Albuquerque simply because the decisions that are made there actually are uh, are counterintuitive to what the farmers and rural folks have to deal with and have to do uh, and it creates and creates a divide but you know the people themselves really have more in common than they have differences other than in the way that decisions are made in terms of taxation and all these different Different things, you know. So Which raises uh, an
3: interesting it, question. I mean Venice was a city state for, for most of its life. Should we abandon the concept of states and turn our cities into the equivalent of states and, and then and then have one giant rural area that's a state or something like that? Boy, that's a lot of food for thought. Tony, thank you for the call. that's very insightful. We'll be back tomorrow. As this uh, coronavirus continues to ravage unnecessarily, because Donald Trump dithered for almost three months, we now have 10,000 dead people in the United States who didn't have to die. We'll continue uh, chronicling that and talking about the issues of the day tomorrow. In the meantime, get active. You've Tag been listening your act. to we'll Tom tomorrow.
2: Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.